God, we do praise you. And uh, God, we thank you for the church. God, we thank you uh, for the beautiful mess that it is. And we thank you, Jesus, that you died in order to purchase our freedom. God, you died in order to not only make forgiveness a reality, but you died in order to create a new people of God called the church. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to never take for granted gathering with the saints. God, there are so many things that you do in these moments when we are together on Sunday. And uh, we just pray, God, that you would be at work, that you would use this passage, you'd use this message, Lord, to be able to challenge and to encourage us as we pursue you with all that we are. So we pray that you'd be at work in Jesus' name, amen. We are living in a time in which people have become easily distracted. Uh, You and I are constantly bombarded with distractions every single day. Uh, Take uh, the smartphone, for example. The smartphone uh, represents a major distraction uh, for most people. I'm sure you've had uh, the experience of walking down a sidewalk and, uh, and someone is, is walking towards you and, and they're on their smartphone, maybe texting or scrolling, doing whatever they're doing. And they're about ready to run into you uh, because they are distracted. Distractions are everywhere. Distractions are, are even in the workplace. In fact, a a recent survey uh, conducted among employees within the workplace discovered that three out of every four employees feel distracted while working. Distractions are everywhere. This is something that we all have to battle. And maybe the worst time to be distracted is while driving a car. Driving for most of us is a fairly monotonous activity. And it's so easy just to let your mind wander. You you could be physically in that car, hands are 10 and two on the wheel. You might be even driving the speed limit. And yet in your mind, inwardly, you're thinking about something else. You're thinking about dinner or uh, an issue at work or a relationship and, and you are distracted. And we know just how dangerous that can be when you're distracted driving. And yet I would argue this morning that distractions are far more dangerous than I think that we care to admit. Not just in the car, not just in the workplace, not just walking down the sidewalk, but distractions are far more dangerous than we care to admit spiritually in our relationship with God. Have you ever experienced becoming spiritually distracted in your relationship with God? I'm sure you have. I know I have in my own life. I've had moments, days, even seasons of my life where something other than God has captured my attention. Something other than God uh, is shaping my priorities, is informing how to spend my time and spend my energy and, and, and how I need to do relationships to go from being fully devoted to the Lord, right? Fully focused on him, just locked in to then focused on something else. I'm sure that we've all been there. Now this morning, as I talk about having an undivided devotion to the Lord, I'm not encouraging us to only think about God 24 seven every moment of the day, right? That would be unrealistic and maybe even unhealthy to a certain degree, But what I'm calling us to this morning is to have a type of undivided devotion to the Lord where he is your top priority, where he is your highest allegiance, where he is the most important thing in your life. 
And yet we all have those moments of becoming spiritually sidetracked. All those moments where something in our lives has kicked Jesus off the throne of our hearts and is now sitting there and now has authority. And the dangerous thing about becoming spiritually distracted is that literally it can, it, anything can distract us. It's not just the sinful things or the inherently evil things that we tend to think about, but it can even be good things in our lives. It can be gifts that God has given us. It can be your job. It can be a relationship. It can be your family or, or, or money or your possessions or pleasure or the approval of others. Anything can serve as a potential distraction in our relationship with God. When I think about becoming spiritually distracted, the, the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10 uh, comes to my mind. A story where Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus uh, for a meal. And in that particular passage, you find Mary who is sitting at the feet of Jesus and she's just adoring Jesus. She's just being present with him. And then you have Martha who is anxious. She's troubled by many things. She is perhaps distracted by other things and she's preparing, she's organizing, she's cleaning. And Jesus says something there that is a challenge for us all. He says that Mary has chosen the better portion and that will not be taken away from her. But then he rebukes Martha and says, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. And I'm struck by that because the cleaning and the preparation for the meal, those are not sinful things. Those are good things that became too much, had a too strong of a grip around Martha's heart that served as a spiritual distraction. Look, the reality is, is that we all can become Martha from time to time, that we all live in a sea of distraction and its waves relentlessly lap up against our own heart and it beckons our attention, it beckons our affection and our devotion. And I wanna challenge us this morning to think about these spiritual distractions as dangerous. These spiritual distractions in our lives are, are not neutral. That on the surface, you could look like a good Christian, you could look spiritual, you could even look religious. And yet when you're spiritually distracted, underneath the surface, your heart is far from Jesus. And I think that is why spiritual distractions are such a threat to having a vibrant relationship with the Lord. Because on the exterior, on the, on the surface of your life, someone could look at you and say, man, you are close to the Lord. You are a good Christian. And yet inwardly, there is something other than Jesus that is on the throne of your heart because you are distracted. Well, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul speaks into what it looks like to have an undivided devotion to God, no matter if you're single, no matter if you're married, no matter if you're widowed. In our passage this morning where the Apostle Paul speaks into issues like singleness, like marriage, like even the hardship of marriage, I believe that verse 35 is what is underneath Paul's counsel in all of those areas. What Paul wants for all of us 
is to have undivided devotion to the Lord. He says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have an undivided devotion to God? I think here are three signs that Paul lays out for us in this passage. Here's sign number one, is when you are content in God and not in your circumstances. Paul begins this section addressing uh, the betrothed in verse 35, those who are engaged to being married. And Paul says something kind of strange in verse 25. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my own judgment. Now, this, of course, does not mean that there are uh, varying degrees of authority or inspiration within uh, God's word. But Paul is doing something here like he did in verse 10 and verse 12, where because the Lord Jesus did not specifically address this topic, the apostle Paul, under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is laying out his judgment and his assessment on this topic. Now, when you look at verse 26, this is key to the counsel that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. That Paul, again, is, is counseling those who are thinking about getting married, but his counsel here is shaped by what he describes as a present distress, a, a unique set of circumstances that was taking place in the church of Corinth. Now, it's almost impossible for us to know with certainty what this type of distress was that the church of Corinth was going through. It could be the, the increased persecution that many in the early church was experiencing during this time. And so maybe that's driving Paul's counsel here. Or uh, what, what could also be likely is that many in the church of Corinth were dying. They were sick. They were weak. Chapter 11, verse 30 uh, tells us that. But nonetheless, the circumstances that were kind of creating the unique distress that this church was going through, even though that's driving Paul's counsel, he says in verse 26, to remain as you are. That's his counsel to those who are thinking about getting married. So he's saying, look, if you are single, perhaps you need to stay single. If you're engaged, maybe you can pursue getting married. If you're married, stay married. Paul essentially says the same thing in verses 36 through 40. He says, if you're engaged and you cannot control your own passions, go ahead and get married. But if you're single and you can control your own passions, then stay single and serve the Lord. If your spouse dies, his preference is for you to stay single and to serve the Lord and to remain as you are. Now, even though uh, we are not experiencing the same kind of distress that the church in Corinth was. I think for those who are single this morning, those maybe who are thinking about getting married, I think it is right and good to apply the wisdom that Paul demonstrates here in looking around at the circumstances in your life to answer the question, is it wise for me to pursue marriage? Is it wise for me to pursue a relationship and to get married? It's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's looking around at the circumstances that this church was going through, the, the unique set of circumstances with the, the, the distress that they were going through. And he's saying, you need to remain as you are. 
Now, this principle is not new for us. Joel hit this last week, three uh, different times in verses 17 through 24. Paul's counsel is to remain as you are. Now, what is Paul really saying here? What does he mean by remaining as you are? I want you to imagine for a moment, just putting yourself in the shoes of the people here at the church at Corinth and hearing from the one who planted this church, the, the father of, of the faith, right? The one who, 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 has, who has started this church, the apostle Paul, who is encouraging those who are single to remain as you are. Like hearing that for the first time would be a challenge to your level of contentment in Christ. For you to remain as you are in whatever relationship status that you have would challenge you if Christ is truly enough for you. Right now for us this morning, even though we're not going through the same set of circumstances, I want you to imagine for a moment if the apostle Paul stood up here and exhorted you to remain as you are in whatever situation that you're in right now, to remain as you are in your relationship status, to remain as you are in your home, to remain as you are in your job, in your car, in, with your wardrobe, right? That is a challenge to the level of contentment that you have and that you are experiencing in Jesus Christ. It would really raise to the surface if Jesus really is enough for you to satisfy your deep longings. See, I think underneath Paul's call to remain as you are is a call to be content in Christ and not in your relationship status and not in your set of circumstances. And the only way to get to that place is to believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is enough. So I think there's a direct connection between your contentment in Christ and your devotion to Christ. That your level of depth in your contentment in Christ will always reveal the depth of your devotion to Christ. That there's a link there. And your contentment in Christ, I think, reveals your devotion to Christ because once you start to look for satisfaction in other things besides Jesus, once you start to wander away from him, become sidetracked, become distracted, your devotion will always follow. See, I think this principle here to remain as you are may not be a principle you need to apply to your relationship status because of the differing circumstances from us in Corinth. But I think this principle to remain as you are is something that we need to preach to our hearts as it relates to finding contentment in Christ, to remain satisfied in Jesus, remain fulfilled in Jesus, not in your circumstances. Trying to find your satisfaction in other things outside of Christ will not last. That your soul was not made to be satisfied by the things of this world only by God. In fact, Jeremiah Burroughs talks about contentment this way. He says, my brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them. 
The reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. See, that is the truth that the the people who are thinking about getting married in Corinth needed to believe. And that is something that we need to believe this morning if we wanna have lasting contentment in Christ that leads to undivided devotion. So that's the first sign. It's having our contentment in God, not in our circumstances. Well, the second sign of having an undivided devotion here is allowing eternity to shape our priorities. Look at verse 29 for a moment. Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers, that the appointed time has grown very short. What's Paul referring to there when he talks about the appointed time has grown very short? Well, Paul is referring to Jesus returning and the fact that, that this world is actually passing away. This is a reminder that we were not created for this world only, we were actually created for eternity. And so Paul here is reminding us that our time on the earth is limited, it is compressed, and it is short. In fact, Jesus's resurrection inaugurated what the New Testament authors call the end of days or the last days, that Jesus will be returning shortly. And if you truly believe that, then that will radically shape your perspective and how to live your life today in the present. See, for you to believe that the appointed time is short, that Jesus will be returning, that you were made for eternity, will be demonstrated in your priorities. See, I could ask you this morning if you believe that Jesus is coming back. I could ask you this morning if you believe that the appointed time is short, but all I have to do is look at your priorities, look at the way that you invest your time, look at what has captured your affections, and I will know the answer to that question. Like, I, I want you just to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about this truth, because I don't think we think about this hardly enough, that your life is a mist. Just think about that for a moment. Your life is a mist, that you are what James says, you're here today and gone tomorrow. Like in light of eternity, your, your life is fleeting. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're, you're not even guaranteed the next minute. Like in light of eternity, your life is a mist. Like, I don't know if we think about that hardly enough, maybe to the degree of allowing that to shape our priorities in the present. But look, your life is incredibly short compared to eternity. And truly believing that will impact how you live today. You're not gonna live forever in this world. You are not immortal in this world. You were made for eternity with God and this world is passing away. Now, what I don't mean is that for us to only invest our lives in things that will last for eternity, all right? That's that's nearly impossible. But what I'm calling us to is to allow eternity to shape all that we do, all right? There's a big difference there. Like for example, um, having clean dishes, having a a clean diaper or a well-arranged expense report at work 
those things won't be in eternity, but because you will be, that should shape the way that you view and the way that you do the dishes, the way that you change those diapers, the way that you complete projects at work. Like your, your calendar will not be in eternity, but because you will be, that should shape how you use your time, how you invest the time that God has given you. And all of that reveals how devoted you are to God. And look, Paul knew that. That's why in verses 29b through 31, he now exhorts us and explains how eternity, how time on this world is short, how all of that needs to shape the following priorities in our lives. He lists a few here. Here's the first one at the end of verse 29. He talks about marriage. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, Paul is certainly not advocating for divorce, right? We've already addressed that here in 1 Corinthians. He's not advocating for infidelity or neglecting your marital responsibilities. But Paul is saying, in light of eternity, in light of the fact that time on the earth is short, do not allow marriage to rob your devotion to the Lord, All right? Now that I think is a challenge for us this morning because within our kind of Christian subculture, like we promote healthy marriages. We, we promote healthy families and we should. Like that's, if you're married, that's your primary area of discipleship. But the warning from Paul here is for us to live knowing that marriage is not ultimate. That marriage was never designed to satisfy your deepest longings. That marriage cannot hold the weight of putting your full devotion upon it. That was reserved for Jesus. See, when you die or when your spouse dies, the marriage ends. But if you belong to God, you belong to God forever. And so your true devotion belongs to him. Look, if you're married this morning, I wanna ask you an honest question. And I want you to take your time thinking through it. It's a really important question. I wanna ask you, do you truly love Jesus more than your spouse? Do you truly love Jesus more than your spouse? And if so, how would you prove that in your life? Don't rush that question. It's a really important question in trying to discern your devotion to the Lord. See, many people, oh yeah, of course I love Jesus more. But honestly, like when you look at your affections, look at your devotion, look at your time, look at your energy, like do you love your spouse more than Jesus? Like I think Paul's point here is that your spouse is really important, but God is more important. And it's because you're made for eternity. Well, notice the next category in verse 30, Paul says, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Now here in, this, in these phrases here, I think Paul is helping us to think through and to manage our emotions in light of eternity. Now, Paul is certainly not encouraging us never to mourn or never to weep, right? Paul himself weeped in Philippians chapter three, verse 18. Part of the Beatitudes is to mourn. 
As Todd prayed this morning, we think of, of some of the, the tragic fatal shootings that have happened, whether in Indianapolis the last couple of days or the tragic death of Dante Wright. And for us as believers, like we are to lament that, we are to mourn that, we are to pray about those things. Even when you think about rejoicing, like to rejoice, to take joy is a command in scripture to choose joy. So these are things that Paul throughout the New Testament, throughout the scriptures wants us to experience, wants us to have. So what's he saying here? Again, Paul is, I think, calling us to manage our emotions in light of eternity. All right, here, here's your quarterly reminder from your pastor. Your feelings are real, but they cannot be authoritative. Your feelings are absolutely real, all right? Don't try to suppress them, but do not allow them to determine the way that you live your life. Look, I am utterly convinced there are too many people who are enslaved to what they feel, to their emotions as being the determining factor in how they live their lives and the decisions that they make and how they treat other people. I mean, how often do you and I miss out on what God wants to do in our lives in acts of obedience because we don't feel like it? How often do we choose having these happy feelings, these feelings of comfort and, and being comfortable and, and all versus choosing being fully devoted to God, even though it's hard, even though it's challenging, even though it is difficult. Look, I'm convinced there's too many people who are believing the lie that if God is calling them to do something, then they need to feel like God is calling them to do something. And if they do something and they don't feel like it, then they're fake. They're inauthentic. They're disingenuous. And look, church, that is garbage theology. That is not what the Bible talks about in terms of obedience. The Bible is much more concerned in terms of obedience for you to exercise your will than exercising your feelings. Like your feelings are a wonderful caboose to your life, but they are a horrible conductor. And for you, you need to, you need to talk back to your feelings, talk back to your emotions with the truth of God's word and don't fall into that trap of doing whatever you feel like it's true. Follow what God has for you in his word. I think this is helpful. Paul is outlining here just a really helpful way to manage our emotions. That laughter and tears are not the last word. This is helpful when you are on top of the mountain and when you are walking through the valley. I think Paul is, is almost articulating this paradoxical tension that we feel in this world, right? This paradoxical tension that he articulates in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where he talks about being sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, being poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. See, he's articulating this paradox of emotions, knowing that we were made for eternity, and yet this world is passing away. And I think that will lead us to having a fully devoted heart. Well, in the next area, look at the last phrase in verse 30. He says, and those who buy as though they had no goods. 
Here, Paul is exhorting us in how to view our money and how to view our possessions. Because look, the reality is, is that we do buy things. We do have possessions. But the warning here from Paul is not to allow those things to fully consume us, right? And and everything that we have really belongs to God. Everything that we have, God has entrusted to us to be faithful stewards, but, but it's all his, right? And, and all of the stuff that we have, our money and our possessions, they're temporary. Like they don't last forever. We're not bringing them into eternity. And so the right posture to have about the things in this world is to hold them open-handedly, like not to white knuckle grip them as if they're gonna bring us satisfaction in the deep places of our soul. No, we hold them open-handedly because we were made for eternity. And then finally, look at uh, verse 31. Paul says, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Again, this is the kind of relationship that we are to have with the world around us. And, And notice the two extremes we need to avoid. We need to avoid being indifferent to the world or wanting to escape or be removed from the world but then we need to avoid being fully immersed in the world or fully accepting the things of this world. There's a a tension there of being in the world, but not of the world, of living here, but living as exiles, obeying the call that God has upon our lives. And so these are various priorities or areas of our lives that Paul is encouraging us to allow the fact that the appointed time here on the earth is short and that you were made for eternity and how to live these out. And I think a great summary of what Paul is trying to say uh, is found in Luke chapter 14, where you find Jesus who's telling this really challenging story of a, of a rich man who decides to throw this great banquet. He throws this enormous party and he tells one of his servants to go out and just start to invite as many people as possible. And once the party was ready, Uh, That individual goes and tries to to tell everybody, hey, the party's ready, come and celebrate. And the text talks about how each person that was invited came back with a different excuse for why they, they won't go to the party. There's one person who says, I can't attend the party. I just bought a field, which represents possessions, and I cannot attend. Another person says, I bought five yoke of oxen, which represents great wealth and I cannot attend the party. Someone else says, I just got married, and so I cannot attend the party. Those are some of the same things that Paul lists here in 1 Corinthians 7. And in that story from Jesus, the party symbolizes being with God. It symbolizes the kingdom of God. And all of these excuses that that these different individuals were giving, they represent the tragic distractions that we have in this world. It's it's really a warning for us not to overinvest our heart in the things of this world and put our ultimate hope in them or else our devotion to God will begin to shrink. And and this morning, if if I could just explain a point of application this morning as lovingly, as possible. But in light of this, in light of what Paul is calling us to, just to apply this to Sunday morning, for example, I am struck 
by the fact that many will arrange their schedules, will wake up earlier, will eat breakfast earlier, eat dinner later, do whatever it takes in order for their kids to attend that music lesson or that soccer practice or that basketball game or attend that family gathering. But those same people will use any little excuse to miss out on the Sunday morning gathering of the saints. They'll use any excuse to, to sleep in or to have extra family time. And just pastorally this morning, as lovingly as I can say this, that is evidence of having misplaced priorities. That is evidence of not allowing eternity to shape the priority of gathering with God's people on Sunday morning, right? Maybe even take, that, take this a step further. And this is for those who maybe are tuning in online right now. Again, wanna say this as lovingly as possible, but there are some with whom we haven't seen in over a year and it's time to come back. There are some who we miss, like we absolutely miss. We want you at church today. I'm not guilting you to come back. I'm saying you are missed. And I'm saying that the gathering of the saints needs to be one of the highest priorities in your life because God does something when his people gather together that you miss out on uh, by, by tuning in maybe online. I mean, I just shared, I had a moment over here in the singing that I didn't, I didn't intentionally create for myself. God just met me there, used various saints within this room to minister to me in a way that I cannot create on my own. And so my call just pastorally is it's, it's time to come back and we miss you and we want you here. Allow eternity to shape your priorities. Finally here, last sign of a heart that is undiv has an undivided devotion to the Lord, verses 32 through 35, is when they have a complete allegiance to God. Paul in verses 32 through 34 now explains why his preference would be for those who are single to actually remain single. He talks about how there's an added anxiety. There's a, an added uh, trouble from the world, verse 28, when you are married. And if you're married, you're probably saying amen to that. Like that's absolutely true, right? But Paul here, he, he wants us to be free from anxieties. And, and yet this word can actually be translated as care or, or concern, and Paul uses this word in this passage both positively and negatively, but it's absolutely true. When you're married, you have an added concern, an added uh, set of anxieties, if you will, in caring for your family, caring for your spouse, that those who are single do not. And so in terms of, of, of going down this path of having undivided devotion, the path, if you're single, is easier than if you are married. And so that's why Paul is encouraging kind of this path that he ended up taking of having an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, obviously elsewhere, just the balances throughout scripture of marriage is a good thing. Marriage is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us to put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible arena in order to work out our sanctification and to reveal sin in our own hearts and our own lives. 
And certainly Paul is not calling those who are married to neglect their responsibilities or to neglect these good concerns. But Paul is challenging both those who are married and those who are single to ensure that they have complete allegiance to God. For us to wake up in the morning and to have your heart firmly set on how to please God. So look, if you're married this morning, be a faithful spouse. Have the best Christ-centered marriage possible. But make sure that your allegiance is to God, that you're living out his values. And if you're single this morning, make sure that your allegiance is completely set on God. To be reminded this morning that you are not less than just because you don't have a spouse. You are not incomplete because you don't have a spouse. You are firmly complete in your relationship with Christ. I think Paul is calling both single and married to set aside distractions from the world so that we can live and have fully devoted hearts to him. Or what he says in verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, before I close this morning, just wanna answer the question, what if you're single? What if you're married and, you, and your devotion to the Lord is divided? What do you do? Is, is there any hope? Is there any path in order to have undivided devotion? And I wanna answer that question by, by trying to illustrate this. Tim Keller uses this amazing illustration as he taps into Greek mythology. He talks about how in Greek mythology, there's a, a group of women, beautiful women with amazing singing voices known as the sirens. And the sirens occupied certain islands. And when ships would, would sail through the, those certain uh, islands, the sirens would begin singing and it would absolutely captivate the hearts and, 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 and the lives of those sailors that those sailors would actually jump overboard and drown. Well, Odysseus was traveling through uh, those islands and he was well aware uh, of the powerful allurement that the sirens had. And so he commanded uh, the, the crewmen on board that ship to tie him to the mast and to fill his crewmen's ears with wax so that they would not be able to hear the singing, the enchanted singing from the sirens. Well, it worked. They traveled through there and, and they were able to resist the singing from the sirens. Even Odysseus at one point was trying to convince uh, his crewmen to untie him because he was being lured away, but they ended up making it. Well, there was another ship, this one led by Jason. And in preparation for passing through the same islands, they had a different strategy. Instead of filling their ears with wax and tying them to the ship there, they chose to have the greatest musician in the world, Orpheus, who was on board that ship and played magnificent and beautiful music. And for them, for those people on board that ship, they were so captivated by the music being played by Orpheus that it was more desirable than the singing from the sirens. And look, I think that this helps us to understand the role of the gospel and the role that Jesus can play for us in having an undivided devotion to the Lord. Uh, the call for us, really, you've got two options. You can either rely on your own willpower. 
You can rely on your own strength to remove these distractions from your life and just kind of gut through it. Or you can flood your heart with something more beautiful, something more powerful, a type of music that will fill your heart with satisfaction that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when your heart is filled with Jesus, then you stop looking for satisfaction in the distractions from the world. And so the call for you today, the call for me, is exactly what the author of Hebrews calls us to, for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, look to Jesus, the one who had complete devotion to God, getting up on a cross, dying in our place, and demonstrating what undivided devotion is all about, who now empowers us to do the same. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for the calling that you have upon our lives. We thank you that the call is to die to ourself or to, to lay aside the distractions of this world and, and to feast on the beauty and the, the power and, and the satisfaction that Jesus and Jesus alone provides. God, I pray, Lord, for, for us who are just struggling with distractions, things of this world, that you would help us, Lord, identify those things, to repent of them, and to fill our hearts and our lives with Jesus. God, help us to be people who are fully devoted to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.